verses. There's no wasted truths, Lord, but everything comes uh, from your hand for our good and your glory. And so we ask that you would speak to us today, uh, that we might be that we might become more and more like your son, Jesus, and that you might be glorified. We commit our time to you now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning, we're going we're to be working through Genesis chapter 10. And Genesis chapter 10 is a difficult chapter to work through. If you have read it, you know that it is a very long genealogy. And one scholar I read on Monday, early in the week as I was studying, uh, he said, the only thing more difficult to preach on than the genealogies in Matthew and Luke is the genealogy in Genesis chapter 10. And I said, thanks for the encouragement, buddy. (laughs) Way to put some wind in my sails for the week. But it is a difficult chapter. But this is where we need to remember that everything in the scriptures was written for our instruction. It is written for our good, that all of God's word has been breathed by him, and it is useful for training, for correcting, for rebuking, for edification, for the equipping of the saints so that we become mature. And so there is so much in this chapter that we are going to explore this morning. And the question we're going to be looking at is, what is going on in Genesis chapter 10? What is going on in Genesis chapter 10? And I'm going to give you four observations on the text And I wanted to warn you that there are uh, hundreds of little trivia details that are packed into this chapter. So you could spend weeks and weeks and weeks uh, exploring all of the details in this text. We're not going to do that. So I want to give you four big observations on Genesis 10. And then I want to give you four points of application. So let's start with what's going on in Genesis chapter 10. The, The first four observations. Number one, Genesis 10 is a genealogical history lesson of the nations of the world. Genesis 10 is a genealogical history lesson of the nations of the world. Genesis 9:19. these three were Noah's sons, and from them the whole earth was populated. So we're supposed to learn that all the nations of the, of the earth have been populated through these three sons. Genesis 10:1. these are the family records of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They also had sons after the flood. And so Genesis 10 is the record of how Noah's family repopulated the earth after the flood, how they were fruitful, how they multiplied, and how they filled the earth. Obviously, at one point, there was no one living in India. At one point, there was no one living in Russia or in Europe or in Africa. And so the natural question that comes up when you think about the population of the world, that we live in a world that is it's filled with humanity, I mean, all over the world, people are, are, are there, but at one point, they weren't there. So the question is, who are these people, and where did they come from? This is the question that Genesis 10 is answering. It is a genealogical history lesson of the nations of the world. Observation number two is that Genesis 10 gives three different genealogies. It's one genealogy that has three genealogies built into it. The genealogies of Japheth, Ham, and Shem, the three sons of Noah. And the goal of the genealogy is not to identify every country that has ever existed. That's not the goal. The goal is to give a broad summary of the nations of the world. It's just to give a broad summary of all the nations of the world. Now, Japheth is first up on the list. So he is the son of Noah, and he is the one whose descendants went the farthest away from the nation of Israel. So here's a map. I think it's a pretty helpful map if you want to put that up there. Uh, Japheth, it's a little bit hard to see, but he's in the red. So Japheth and his descendants went north 
They went northeast and northwest. They went as far west as Great Britain and as far east as eastern Russia. And they populated everything in between. And in verse 2, we get a list of Japheth's seven sons. The first son is Gomer. And from Gomer came the Sumerian people or Chimerian people, depending on who you listen to. So who are those people? France, England, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales. So much of Western uh, Europe. In Genesis 10, 3, it says Gomer's son, Ashkenaz. Ashkenaz is listed in verse 3 as one of the sons of Gomer. Ashkenaz, is, is, it is the German people. For centuries and centuries and centuries, you go back in time, you look at ancient maps, the territory that, it, that is now Germany was called the land of Ashkenaz. And so it's a little bit inter- interesting that Japheth, he went north and he went northwest into Europe. But his sons, his sons, they also went east as well. So the second son of Japheth is Magog, Magog. And they became the Scythian people. Josephus said that Magog is the father of the Scythian people. Who are those people? Uh, we don't ask people, hey, are you Scythian? We don't ask that question today. You don't hear about that very, <clears throat> very often. So who are they? Well, they are the Russians and Eastern Europeans. The third son of Japheth is Madai. Madai. They became the, the Medo-Persian Empire, which is modern-day Iran. But that, that's, that is just part of his descendants. If you keep studying his descendants, you'll see that, uh, that from his descendants come India and Afghanistan. The fourth son of Japheth is Javan. And from Javan, the descendants of Javan, you get the Greeks, the Romans, the Italians. And it says that Javan had a son named Tarshish, Tarshish, which is Spain. Fifth and sixth, the fifth and sixth sons of Japheth, Tubal and Meshach, Tubal and Meshach. And from Tubal and Meshach, you get the Georgian people, not Atlanta, Georgia, uh, but, the, but the country of Georgia and Turkey. And I was reading a little bit about Meshach. This is very interesting. Like I said, there are a hundred details you could track down. <clears throat> and it is fascinating that Meshach, he settled a town that would become Moscow, Moscow, capital city of Russia. Tubal settled a city that became Tubolsk, Tubolsk. It's a major city in Russia. The seventh son of Japheth, <clears throat> Tiras. And Josephus said that Tiras had kids that were Thracians. That, that was his comment, that they were Thracians. This is what they were known for. And what does that mean? It means that they had flamed hair. They were redheads. This is Tiras' kids. So Prince Harry comes from here, and Andy Dalton, and Ed Sharon, and Carrot Top, and uh, the list goes on from here. Now, there's a lot of debate about his descendants, because you think about redheads, and you think, okay, what in the world? How does this all play out? Well, the best, the best historians that I trust the most, they said that his descendants went and populated the Balkans, this, this part of the world, Albania, Bosnia, Bulgaria, Romania, Serbia, Slovenia, Austria, Italy, Hungary, and Turkey. And so from these seven sons come many nations of the earth. And in the genealogy of Japheth, you are, we are given, we are given seven, or 14 names, so seven sons, of Japheth, and then seven of their sons, so 14 on the list, and that will become significant here in a minute. And then we move to Ham, that Ham. Ham and his descendants went south. So here's a map. Uh, if you want to put the map back up, Ham, he went south into northern Africa, and from there, much of Africa was populated. And it says that Ham had four sons, Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. Four sons, Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. The first son of Ham, uh, Cush, from him came Ethiopia. And when you read the, 
the Old Testament, Ethiopia is a pretty prominent nation. He also had sons Sheba and Dedan, which became Saudi Arabia. And then Cush had another son, the most, the most prominent of all of his sons, a man named Nimrod. And Nimrod will take center stage next week, so we'll get into Nimrod next week. But he's described in verse 10 this way. It says, his kingdom started with Babylon, Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq. It's one of the most significant ancient cities in the world. Verse 11, from that land, he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, another very significant, another very significant city. The second son of Ham, Mizraim, and from Mizraim came Egypt, which is obviously a very famous, influential country and people. The third son of Ham, Put. From Put came Libya, the Libyan people. Now, the first three sons of, of Ham, they established northern Africa, and they populated much of Africa. But there's a distinction between the first three sons and the fourth son, Canaan. Canaan. The Canaanites became the immediate neighbors of Israel. And the closer you get to the nation of Israel, the more details you get about the genealogy. So this is what we're told in verse 15. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn in Heth, <clears throat> as well as the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zamorites, the Hamathites, the Cellulites, and the Electrolytes as well. I just <laughs> made that up. A lot of ites here. But you read about those people a lot in the Old Testament. Who are they? They're part of the Canaanites. They're, they're, they are the neighbors of the nation of Israel. And this is the land that God prepared for Israel. This is the promised land, modern-day Israel and historical Israel. And so it's a, very, it's a very significant group of people that the rest of the Old Testament will discuss a lot. It is the future promised land, the land flowing in milk and honey. Now, there are 30 names given to us on the list of Ham's descendants. That will be important in a minute. So 14 with Japheth, 30 with Ham. And then we come to Shem. Shem. So here's Shem. Here's the map of Shem and the Shemites. And he went into the Middle East, he and his descendants. And the rest of the biblical story will focus on Shem and his descendants. So you keep, you keep reading the Old Testament, and virtually every person in the Old Testament, every significant figure, almost every significant fig figure will be a descendant from Shem. And the first son on the list is a man named Eber. And this is where we get the word Hebrew. This is where the Hebrew language comes from, Eber. And from Eber, eventually you'll get Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the Israelites, uh, the prophets, everybody will come from there, including Christ. And then you get another son named Aram, Aram. His descendants would would move into Syria, the nation of Syria. And one significant detail about Aram is that this is where the Aramaic language came from. Aramaic is one of the three biblical languages in the Bible, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. Jesus spoke Aramaic. That probably was you know, the, the language he used the most. It came from Aram. And then you have Uz, Uz. And from Uz comes Jordan, very big, significant country, in the Old Testament and even today. And there's another very historical, biblically important person who lived in the land of Uz, Job. That Job lived there, that's where he settled. And when you go through Shem, you see that there are 26 names in the genealogy of Shem. Why does that matter? Well, observation number three, it's that the 70 listed names in the genealogy is significant. That, that set of 70 names is significant. Why? 
Why is it significant that there's 70? Ken Matthew says, 70 is a biblical symbolic number that represents totality and completion. This multiple of seven and ten numerical figures indicating completeness indicates that the whole of the, of the world's families are under the eye of God. This is the point, that the whole world is under the eye of God. The point of the genealogy is not to identify every people group or every country that has ever existed. The goal is to give us a broad summary of the nation of the world, saying that all peoples all around the world are under the eye of God. And from these 70 names, these 70 names will populate the earth, which leads to number four. What's going on here? Why do we get a genealogy like this? Well, I think this is the primary reason. It's that God is zooming out before he zooms in. God is zooming out before he zooms in. In chapter 12, the story of Genesis will focus on the rest of the book. Starting in chapter 12, for the rest of the book of Genesis and much of the Old Testament, the biblical story will focus in on one person and his descendants. One person. So you go from what God is doing is he's zooming out. He's saying, let's look at the whole world, all the nations of the world, and then he's going to focus in on one person and his family, Abraham, and his descendants, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the Israelites, and then the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you started reading the book of Genesis at chapter 12, and then you finish the book of Genesis, you might come to the conclusion that God is only the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he doesn't care about the rest of the world. That God is just ignoring the rest of the world. Because you read the story and you're like, God, you are so focused on this one people. You're so focused on Abraham and his descendants. Like, do you even care about the rest of the world? Are you just, are you ignoring the rest of humanity? The rest of humanity? And that is not the case. God is not ignoring the rest of humanity. And here's a key truth for you to take away. It's that God is the Lord and Savior of everyone and everything. So chapter 10 is teaching us he is the Lord and he is the Savior of everyone and everything, of all the nations of the world. This does not mean that every person and every nation, you know, when you think about uh, the percentage of people, that, that everyone is going to be saved equally, that all people will be saved, and every, every nation will have an equal representation of people before the throne of God. That's not what is being said here. The idea is that the Lord Jesus Christ is the only Lord and Savior of the whole world. He is the only one who can save. All the other gods in the world are false gods. They're false gods. They, can, they have no saving power. And even though humanity rejects God, even though humanity rebels against God, the nations still belong to him. That every human being has been created in the image of God, and they exist for the glory of God. All people, all tribes, all languages, all nations, all around the world. There's not one human being, there's not one tribe, there's not one nation that exists outside of the sovereignty of God. The whole world belongs to him. Abraham Kuyper famously said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine, mine, that all people and all nations belong to him. Or as Sue Thomas famously sang, he's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the mamas and the papas. He's got you and me, sister, in his hands. Psalm twenty-two, twenty-seven: all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn 
to the Lord. Is God ignoring the rest of the world? Certainly not. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. He rules over the nations. Isaiah 43, 11, I, I am the Lord. Besides me, there is no savior. Besides me, there is no savior. There is no savior for the world besides the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John 4, 14, and we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. He is the savior of the world. He is the Lord and Savior of everyone and everything. If anyone is going to find eternal life, it will be in Christ. Now, what do we do with this information? What what are we supposed to learn and apply in our lives? Well, there are four points of application I want to give you. Number one, recognize the global nature of the Great Commission. Recognize the global nature of the Great Commission. Genesis 10 comes after Genesis 11. I'm going to say that one more time. Just to make sure you're paying attention. As far as the, chronologi- the chronological aspect of the story, Genesis 10 comes after Genesis 11. So Genesis 11 happens, and then Genesis 10 happens. So the story is, is, is out of order from one perspective. In Genesis chapter 11, the people are united. We're going to see this next week. The people are united. They're in one place, one language, working together. But then in Genesis 10, the world is all divided up. Genesis 10, 31 says, these are Shem's sons by their clans, according to their languages, in their lands, and their nations. So they're divided up by clans, by their interrelated families, by their languages, the language that they spoke. Now there are all these different languages. By their lands, where they live, and by their nations, to whom they belong. And from this point on in the story, in Genesis 10, humanity is only going to get more and more spread out. They're going to keep going to the ends of the earth. Humanity is going to get more divided and more hostile towards one another. And so by the time you get to the end of Genesis chapter 10, we are given a bleak bleak picture for the future. It is bleak. It is depressing in many ways. Everyone is divided. Everyone is moving away from one another. They're separated by land and nations, cultures. They're separated by territory, and they're, they're separated because of sin. That's what sin does, is it divides the world. It breaks relationships. But brothers and sisters, God loves the world. And he rules. He's in charge. He is the only Lord and Savior of the world. And in Genesis chapter 12, we will watch as God selects one man. I mean, this is so exciting. In the book of Genesis, we're going to watch as God selects one man, Abraham. And God decides he's going to bless Abraham, and through Abraham and his descendants, God will bless all the families of the earth. All the families, all the nations of the world will be blessed by Abraham's descendants. So from Abraham will come Isaac and Jacob and the Israelites, and eventually the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Christ came into the world, the Son of God, he came to give life to the world. He came to to live the life that God requires of each one of us and then die the death that we deserve for our sin. And then he rose again from the dead. And after he rose from the dead, before he ascended into heaven, he gathered with his disciples in Matthew 28 and said this. Jesus came near and said to them, 
All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Here's the resurrected Christ with his disciples who have been with him. And he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, the whole world, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. God's heart is for the whole world. The gospel is not just for Israel. The gospel is not just for America. But the gospel is for the whole world. It is good news for all people. It is the only news. It is the only news. The good news of Jesus Christ is the only message that can save people from eternal hell. And sometimes we can get so granular. I'm, I'm speaking to myself here as well. But sometimes we get so granular and hyper-focused on what is right in front of us that we miss God's plan. We don't sense that, that God is the God over all nations and that the gospel is to go to the ends of the earth, to every creature, and that the gospel is the only hope for the world. And see, as a church, this is why we exist. Why do we exist as a church? We exist for the glory of God. We exist for God. And we exist to make disciples of all nations starting in our city. This means we do not exist to be a social club. But what are we about as a church? Are we about just being a social club? Certainly not. Do we exist to scratch your religious itch that you have? You know the itch that, that starts to build when you haven't been to church for a while and you start to feel bad, so you say, I gotta go to church. We don't exist for that purpose. We exist that Christ might be exalted and that disciples will be made. And so our soul, in our souls, we need to sense the global nature of the Great Commission. Number two, pray like crazy. Pray like crazy. The task of making disciples of all nations is overwhelming. It's overwhelming when you actually think about it. You think about Jesus standing with his disciples, his 11 disciples, saying, go make disciples of all nations. I mean, what are they going to do? I mean, what are, it's like, okay, what do we do? Where do we start? Or you think about the birth of the church. There's 120 in the upper room. And they were to go into Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's an overwhelming task. So the best place to start <clears throat> is by praying. And we, we ought to be a praying church. And my dear brothers and sisters, you ought to be praying families. You ought to be praying families. What do you pray about? Well, you pray that God would raise up workers. You pray for your lost friends and coworkers. But I want to give you just categorically three things to pray for. First, you should ask God to grow your heart for people who are just like you. Just pray. Ask God, will you grow my heart for people who are just like me? We can become so comfortable in our day-to-day -day lives. We can become so comfortable with the people we work with, with the neighbors that we have, with the families on our kids' teams. And we can observe that a lot of people in our country have a really good life. I mean, relatively speaking, they have a good life. They have jobs, they have food, they have clothing, they have possessions. They have a good life in the world. And what can happen is we can think to ourselves, well, they're, they're, they're fine the way they are. <laughs> but we forget the truth that even if life is pretty good, if you don't have Christ, you have nothing. If you do not have Christ, you have nothing. You remain under the wrath of God. You're headed towards hell. And so pray, oh God, open my eyes 
and give me a heart for the people who are right around me, right around me. Secondly, what do you pray for? Pray that God would grow your heart for people who are not like you locally. People who are not like you locally. And over the course of time, we can become so insulated, we get trapped in our bubbles, I'm guilty of this, and we don't even see all the people who are in our city who are different than us. I was having lunch this week, thinking about the message, and two ladies, the the restaurant was very busy, and there were two ladies who sat down, and one had bright green hair, and the other had bright pink hair. And they were talking, we were close enough that I could actually listen to their conversation. And they had all the stickers, I don't even need to say what the stickers are, they had all of them all over the place, all the stickers are there. And I'm sitting there and I just thought to myself, typically I wouldn't even, it, they, would, they wouldn't even come onto my radar. They wouldn't even come onto my radar. I would just look at them and be like, okay, whatever, and I would just move, move on. But I was just thinking, oh God, will you give me a heart for people who are different than me in our city? Just people who are not like us, people who maybe we don't feel comfortable around all the time or whatever it is. And that's going to be different for all of us. That's part of the beauty of the body of Christ, that we have different relationships and giftings and passions. And you think about all of us as a body. If we care about people who are different than us, we're going we're to impact tons of people for Christ. So pray, oh God, grow my heart for people who are not like me locally. And then number three, Pray, oh God, grow my heart for people who are not like me globally. We live in a big world, and so much of the world is lost. And the starting point is to pray, oh God, pray, would you send workers into the harvest, into the world, that people might be saved. And if you're married, uh, husbands, you should pray with your wife and pray with your kids. Pray for your lost neighbors. Pray for countries around the world. When we get in, when we get in our car, I'll, I'll get in the car with my kids. We're going to a game or something. I'll say, hey, let's take a minute. Let's just pray for your lost teammates and their families. Pray that they would come to faith in Christ. And so this is what we are to do. We are to be a praying church. Number three, share the gospel. So recognize the global nature of the Great Commission. Pray like crazy, share the gospel. Jesus says, go, go, you initiate. Christians are initiators with the gospel. We don't wait, we do not wait for people to come to us and to say, wow, you guys, you're like the coolest, nicest person that's ever lived. What's different about you? Can you tell me about Christ? We don't wait for that. If that happens, praise God. But we are to initiate with wisdom and with love. Now, one of the biggest obstacles to sharing the gospel is fear. Don't you get a little afraid? Some of you, your heart is already starting to beat a little bit, <laughs> a little bit faster when you start thinking about sharing the gospel with people. You think, oh, am I really going to do that? It's the fear of being uncomfortable, the fear of awkwardness, the fear of not knowing what to say to people. And it can get a little bit weird, or it could disrupt relationships. And I, I know that, and the, and the Lord Jesus Christ knows that. He knows that there can be some tension. I was uh, flying home from Denver last month. And this woman sat down right next to me, very kind person, and we started talking, and it turns out that she's a principal at uh, a high school in San Francisco. So I thought this is going to be very interesting. Let's see how this goes. So uh, she told me that, that she got divorced, 
uh, we were just talking, and she said, are you married? Yeah, I'm married. We're talking, and she said she got divorced, and it was appropriate in the conversation to say, what happened? Why did you get divorced? And she said, well, my husband was becoming more and more conservative, and she goes, don't get me wrong. He didn't become a Republican because he's not a crazy person, but he was becoming more <laughs> and more conservative, and I'm like, what do you mean? And, and he's like, or she's like, well, he thought, or he thinks that you shouldn't have LGBTQAI plus books in school libraries. And that's crazy. They should be there. How are the kids supposed to learn? And then she looks at me and she goes, what do you think? <laughs> and I said, I said, of course they shouldn't be there. What? Of course they shouldn't be there. And so we got into it and, and she said, why? And I said, I'm a Christian. And then she started to tease me a little bit and I said, I'm here for this. This is great. <laughs> I know where this is going. This is gonna be great. And, uh, and she says, she, she goes, you actually believe in the Bible? And I said, absolutely. And she said, I grew up in a Methodist church. My dad was a Methodist pastor. And she said, I knew I was an atheist when I was 12 years old. But I kept going to church with my family until I was 18. And she says, those Methodists, they're not bad people. I don't mind them at all. She goes, but the Southern Baptists, on the other hand, they are the worst. She goes, they are the worst. And I said, I said, I said why is that? And she goes, they're so rigid about the Bible, they're no fun at all. And, uh, and then she said, what do you do for a living? And um, <laughs> honestly, and I, said, I, I said, I'm a pastor. <laughs> at what kind of church? Uh, Southern Baptist Church. And, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so we had a good laugh. And she said, I was starting to like you, and now I can't like you anymore. And I said, that's okay. You can like me or whatever. <laughs> but then I spent the rest of the time, I spent the rest of the time on the plane, captive audience. <laughs> She's on the plane. I spent the rest of the time with her talking about sin, heaven, hell, human sexuality, the cross, the resurrection of Jesus, and her need for a savior. And I, this, is, this is what was going through my head. There are a few little awkward moments. As you could probably anticipate, there are a few little awkward moments. But as I walked off the plane, my heart was overflowing with gratitude. I just thought, God, first, thank you for saving me, and thank you for the opportunity to represent Christ to this woman. Who is going to talk to her about Christ? She's a principal at a high school in San Francisco who divorced her husband because he was a little bit too conservative. Who is going to talk with her? And I said, praise God. God, thank you for the opportunity to tell this woman about Christ. So how do you get over your fear of awkward conversations? How do you get over your fear of disrupted relationships? Well, here's the answer. You need to see people. My dear brothers and sisters, this is not about you. It, when you make it about you and your comfort level, you miss the point. It's not about you. If you're saved, God doesn't want you to tell people about Christ so that you're saved. If you know Christ, no, no, it's, it's for the good of others and the glory of Christ. You've got to see people. I saw a video I can't get out of my head. I'm going to show it really quickly. Here's the video. I hope it gets stuck in your head, too.
I saw that video and I said, uh, God, I hope, we're, I hope that we are a church like that. Uh, that's what I hope. We don't save anybody, but you, you, you see what's going on. If you watch more of the video, there's, some pe- there's a big fire and there are people who are, some people are probably frazzled or distracted or whatever and they're walking by. But then someone goes, wait a second, there's a guy hanging out of the building that's on fire. And they came over and they held out their arms and they saved his life. We don't save anybody. We don't save anyone. Christ does the saving. And because of his mercy, he allows us to participate, to be involved. And so it's, 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 it's really not about us. You gotta, the focus, is, it shouldn't be on, is this a little uncomfortable? The, the focus should be on the good of the other person. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's love for neighbor and God that should move us towards telling people about Christ. So you need to see people, and then you need to practice. There's no way to get good at sharing the gospel or to feel more comfortable sharing the gospel unless you just do it. You just have to do it. Like, I don't know. It's just going to be awkward at times. And you don't have to be weird. You don't have to be a weirdo doing it. Uh, you going to hell when you die or what? You know, kind of looks like it. Uh, way you live. You should stop. You know, like, don't be weird. You can eliminate a lot of the weirdness. But just, if, you're, if your heart is in tune with that person, just practice. So practice on your kids. And practice on your spouse. And practice on your neighbors. Just Get into the habit of sowing the truth. And then remember the promise. Jesus says, and remember I am with you always to the end of the age. He says, I'm with you. I'm with you. Go do it. I'm with you. How are we going to do it? He's like, I'm with you. That's, that's the X factor. What you need is the Lord Jesus Christ. And then lastly, know the end. You need to know the end. Where is human history going? Revelation 7. After this, I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation. Now, I'm just, i got to stop here. You're going to see this. If you're a Christian, this is where we're going. This is what we will see. There was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number And where are they? Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice. What are they crying out? So people from all over the world, they're crying out in a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. Revelation 5, 9. And they sang a new song. Worthy You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered. You died on the cross. You were slaughtered. Now, what did did the cross purchase? When Jesus dies, do you believe he died? What did the cross purchase? And you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they will reign on earth. So brothers and sisters, our our future, this is our future. Uh, The Lord Jesus Christ will build his church. 
The gospel will go to the ends of the earth, and God is he's asking us to participate with him. And for most of us, that means we need to be fruitful where we're planted, right here, most of us. That's what God is calling us to, to be fruitful where we, where we are planted. And for some of us, God will call to the ends of the earth. But brothers and sisters, we have a great God. We have a great God. We have a great mission. We have a great gospel. We have good news for the whole world. So let's not be ashamed of Christ. Don't be ashamed of him. He he is the hope of the world. He's the one who rules and reigns over all things. Don't be ashamed of him. He's the one who came and lived and died and rose again that we might be with him forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for all that you have done 